Oh, Father, as we come to your word, we remember that your word is sufficient. We remember that your food is nourishment for the depths of our souls. And that we come as beggars who are hungry for your word, who are hungry for Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would feed us during this time, that you would nourish us during this time. We pray for our children. And we pray for both the children inside the womb and those outside of the womb. We pray, O Lord, that You would save them. We pray that You would bestow grace to them, saving grace to them, that they may believe in Christ, repent of any other device, and turn to rely entirely on Christ. We pray that this would be in Your due time, O Lord. We trust in You. We trust that Your Word does not return void to You. And we trust, O Lord, that You have the power to save our children. Just as You have demonstrated Your power in saving us, You've broken our hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh. You've put Your Spirit within us and caused us to walk in Your ordinances. We thank You for that. And so as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would use Your Word to teach us Your ordinances. Use Your Word to teach us to walk in Your ways in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 29. It's been a while. Since we've studied a psalm, I think the last one we did was in November. It's been a while. Uh, last month, I, uh, instead of preaching a psalm, the first Sunday of the year, I typically preach something that uh, deals with issues that we as a church might need help with or might need encouragement in. And so uh, I preached out of Romans 13 last month, if you remember that, uh, on the biblical case for defying tyrants. But today we're going to be continuing our study in the Psalms by looking at the first Psalm that we would call a praise Psalm, uh, and that is the 29th Psalm. Now a lot of the Psalms that we've already looked at uh, leading up to this point were Psalms of lament, Uh, they were Psalms of of grief, maybe they were petitions for divine assistance. Sometimes there there will be verses scattered throughout here and there that uh, would incline us to worship and would incline us to praise God, but this Psalm really stands alone as the first Psalm that is completely devoted to encouraging us, to instructing us to praise the Lord. David turns a different direction than he's been going with this Psalm. This is a psalm, really, if you wanted to boil it down, this is a psalm about the sovereignty of God. This is a psalm about how much God is worth. It's a psalm that reminds us that every creature on the planet, that all of creation has a calling and an obligation in light of God's unfathomable worth to worship Him and to give Him glory. We should keep in mind as we start this psalm that the word worship, if you really wanted to get to the etymology of it, the word worship is actually derived from the word worth. Uh, To worship is to declare the worthship, uh, or what we might call worthiness 
of its object. And so when we're talking about God, we have to understand that His worth is more than we can imagine. His worth is beyond the ability of any finite creature to fully grasp. As a finite creature, you have even less of a chance of grasping the infinite worthiness of God than an ant has of drinking all of the water in the ocean. It's more likely that cities will be built on all the moons surrounding Jupiter by the end of next year than it is that any one of us or any other human being will ever grasp, fully grasp, the infinite worth of God. But just because an ant can't drink all the water in the ocean doesn't mean that he can't drink any. And similarly, just because neither you nor I can grasp the infinite worthiness of God doesn't mean that we can't grasp any of it at all. And therefore, throughout our time on earth, this is kind of what we talked about last week in our study in John, uh, throughout our time on earth, we have to make every effort to expand our ability to grasp His worthiness and to worship Him by reading His Word through which we gain a deeper understanding of Him. We study Him, we submit to Him, we obey Him, and we worship Him. John Calvin says this of Psalm 29. He says, quote, There is nothing in the ordinary course of nature throughout the whole frame of heaven and earth which does not invite us to the contemplation of God. End quote. And that's exactly what this psalm is designed or written to accomplish. So this is a psalm that is very poetic. Remember, it was a song that they sang for, uh, you know, every time they, not every time they gathered, but when they gathered, they sang the psalms. And so this was a song that even Jesus probably sang at some point. And it's written in a manner that is specifically designed to be very visual. If you're, if you're a very visual person, this psalm is for you. Uh, it's almost as if we're supposed to imagine what David is describing as a means of expanding our ability to grasp the greatness and the worthiness of God. And so as we go through this psalm, I encourage you to try to imagine what he's describing. Try to sketch out a mental picture of the things that David is using to illustrate God's power and his worth. So as we approach this psalm, let's remember that it's important to have a very high view of God while also remembering that a high view of God results in a low view of ourselves. This psalm is supposed to give us a very high view of God. Conversely, if if you've got a low view of God, it's because you've got a high view of yourself. That's why we must humbly worship as sinful beggars who recognize that we need God and yet we deserve nothing from God. And that we have nothing to, to offer Him, nothing to give that He needs. He is entirely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from anyone, which when you consider these things, makes the invitation to come and worship Him and to praise Him both amazing and, if you understand that correctly, humbling. Many in our world would claim that there is no God, and yet we know that the only way to reach that conclusion 
is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in Romans chapter 1, that's exactly what Paul says people do. There's therefore no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as a true atheist. Anyone who claims to be an atheist has deceived themselves intentionally. They are simply denying and suppressing what is evident within their own conscience and understanding of the created order. The truth about God is known to all. No exceptions. Everybody knows that God exists because it's displayed everywhere by everything in every place so that nobody can stand before Him one day and have an excuse for not humbly worshiping Him and submitting to Him. And so, with all these things established, the point of this psalm is that because God, and God alone, is worthy of our worship, all of creation, including us, have a calling and an obligation to glorify Him. All of creation has a calling and an obligation to worship God and to glorify Him. From the highest heavens where the angels, the choirs of angels, praise Him and declare His worth and His holiness day and night to a violent and destructive rainstorm that demolishes everything in its path on the earth to the flood that covered the entire earth in ancient times. The Lord God is the sovereign King over all of creation, causing all things to work together to their appointed end for His glory and for the greatest good of His people. The psalm at hand being poetic, uh, what we're going to see is it's filled with repetition. There is so much repetition in this psalm. In just 11 verses, we're going to find the word the Lord, or in Hebrew, Jehovah, 18 times. What do you think the theme of this psalm might be? Him. It's about Him. And we'll start to see that trend of poetic repetition in the opening two verses where we see David summoning the angels in heaven. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. It says, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Anybody counting how many lords there are there? Four of them in two verses. Repetition. Repetition. Now, there, there's some debate when you, when you read commentaries on this psalm, there is some debate about who these sons of the mighty uh, refers to. Uh, there are some who believe that it, uh, it refers to powerful people on earth. Um, I would say we can't entirely rule that possibility out, but I believe the stronger argument as to who that refers to uh, leans toward this phrase being used of angels. The same phrase, sons of the mighty, uh, is a, a phrase that you find in Psalm 89, verse 6, where it clearly uh, seems to be referring to the heavenly hosts of, of heaven. Uh, and further, there, there is a different word. There's an entirely different Hebrew word that gets used in reference to powerful people here on earth. So I believe that this is, and, and most, common, uh, most, commenta uh, most commentators would agree that this is 
a petition, a summons to the angels. The question then arises, if that's the case, why would David be summoning angelic choirs in heaven to worship God when David knows that that's already what they're doing? Why would he do that? And I'd say there are at least two answers to this question. First of all, let's remember that this is a poem. Uh, so this is a poetic way of saying that all of creation is invited. All of creation has an obligation to worship and praise God from the highest and the most powerful creatures in heaven to the lowest creatures on earth. Uh, that, that's, that's one reason I think David says this. Secondly, it seems that David is expressing his own unworthiness to worship God. What he's expressing here is the inadequacy of his own worship, of, of what he alone has to offer the God whose worth is beyond our ability to grasp. One of the primary functions that angels serve is to acknowledge and to declare God's sovereign holiness and thus his great worth. This praise is due to God, not only by the angelic choirs, but by all of creation. So this summons really flows from having a right perspective of God on David's part. And, and the understanding that what we have to offer God is like nothing in comparison to what He deserves, to what He is owed in terms of worship. He, so, David needs others to join in with him to help in worshiping and praising God adequately. And thus he calls on the angelic choirs and the angelic hosts in the highest heaven to join him, recognizing that even then, the praise that he and the angels offer unto God will always be lacking in sufficiency. We can never, never declare the full worth of God because He's infinitely worthy. So the repeated phrase here uh, is ascribed to the Lord. So we see three times. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. What does ascribe mean? It means to attribute. It means to acknowledge that something either comes from a person or is due to a person or, or belongs to a person. So what is due to God? What is David telling us we must ascribe to God? First of all, glory. Glory. Ascribe to the Lord the glory is the first thing he says. All glory is His. All glory is God's. Now, the same Hebrew word can actually be translated honor as well. So, we would say that all glory, praise, and honor are due to God. Why is that due to God? Because of who He is. That's it. That's the answer. It's because of who He is. His infinite worth flows from who He is as God. Notice the repetition of the command to ascribe glory to God. We, we see it both in the first and second verses. 
And remember that repetition is just kind of a, it's a, a Hebrew uh, way of putting something in bold font. In our, in our day and age, that's what we do. We'd put something in all capital letters, or we'd put you know, bold font or underline it or something. It's kind of doing the same thing. It's a way of putting it in bold font or, or underlining it. And David adds that glory is actually due to God. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. That implies that giving Him glory is an obligation that every one of us has. Notice that David doesn't tell us why we or the angelic choirs owe glory to God. And I believe that the reason he doesn't give us any reason is because it's self-evident. It's obvious. It should be completely obvious why all glory is due to Him. It's because He is worthy of all glory just because of who He is as Creator God. To know Him in even the slightest bit would give us every reason in the world to submit in obedience to Him and to glorify Him. Secondly, David says that we are to ascribe strength to Him. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, he says. Now that might seem kind of confusing. Why would an all-glorious, all-powerful God need to have strength ascribed to Him? And the answer is that this is David's way of reminding us that any strength that we have, any life that we have, comes from God. As John the Baptist declared in John chapter 3, verse 27, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Everything that we have comes from God. Do you have strength? Do you have life? If you understand what I'm saying, you do. It has not come from you. It hasn't come from you. It has come from God. It has been given to you by God. And as such, we are required as His creation to use that strength in service unto the Lord. We are required to work. Not in order to be saved, again, but because we've been saved. We have that understanding. The final instruction that David gives to these angelic choirs is to worship the Lord in holy array. Now, depending on your translation, it might also say wow, to worship the Lord in the, holy, in the majesty of holiness. Uh, either way, it means the same thing. God dwells in majestic holiness. It, you can't see God without seeing holiness. Uh, holiness is uh, part of what God is, who God is. Uh, that is to say that He dwells in this beautiful array of holiness. Of all the attributes of God that the Bible tells us about, holiness is the one attribute that gets the greatest amount of emphasis. We're told in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision in which he stands before the Lord, that the angels are declaring what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Revelation 4.8, we read something similar. We read of the four living creatures that do not rest day and night. They're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. There's an implication in both of these places that only one holy, or, or even two holies, would be entirely 
insufficient to describe how holy God is. There is indeed no other attribute of God that's given this threefold repetition anywhere in Scripture. And so therefore, when we worship God, we have to understand that holiness is essential to who He is. When we worship God, we should feel a sense of awe at His holiness. And like Isaiah, we should be struck with a sense of how unworthy we are, how unholy we are in comparison to Him, especially so unholy that who are we to enter into His presence? If we are to truly worship God, we must come to Him in recognition of His holiness. Now, the word holiness has a couple implications. First of all, it means separate, but it also implies a righteousness, a hatred of sin. And so if we're to come before God and truly worship Him, we have to come in recognition of His altogether separateness and of His hatred of sin and His love of what is good. Which raises the question, how can we, as unholy sinners, enter into the presence of a holy God who is entirely separate from us, who loves what is righteous and who hates what is evil? In other words, if you've been out sloshing in the mud, how are you going to come inside into this pristine, clean carpet without tracking mud in? What can cleanse us from our sin so that we can come into God's presence? And the answer is nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why the prayers of the wicked, the prayers of unrepentant evil people fall on deaf ears. Apart from the cleansing and atoning in the sacrificial blood of Christ, no person can come into God's presence. That's why we only come in the name of Jesus. It's because Jesus' blood cleanses us. It washes away our sin. How can we be cleansed by the blood of Jesus? By repenting and believing in Him. In Jesus. Have you done that? If not, I I have to make known to you today that God is a holy God who hates sin, and yet He is more eager to forgive your sin than you are to sin. He is worthy of your worship. He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect life, a life in which He did not ever sin, in which His will never strayed from the will of the Father. He came to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death on behalf of all who would believe in Him. We do not naturally desire this. We do not naturally, by our nature, want to worship God. Our nature, because of our sin, our nature only steers us away from God. But by grace alone, God draws sinners to Christ to believe and to worship. Now the Hebrew word for worship literally means to bow down. It means to, to, to bow down, to prostrate yourself. And this is what we see angels and saints doing when they are in the presence of God. 
We're told that the day is coming when every knee will bow. And yet, if there's one thing we can be sure of, it's that not all will be saved. Some will kneel before Him as a servant, but some, many, will bow before Him as convicted criminals. But David is speaking of bowing before Him, before God, in the here and now, right now, while you have time as a servant. What that means is more than just physically bowing down or taking a knee before Him. It means surrendering your will. It means surrendering your heart and your mind to His. It means turning away from any notion that you might have of being autonomous, self-governing, or self-ruling. And to align ourselves with God, to align ourselves not with not, not to hope, not hopefully that, that he'll align himself with our will, but that we align ourselves with him. That's what it means to worship him. What the angels do naturally. Unlike us, they don't have a fallen nature. What the, what, the, what the angels do naturally, worshiping God, ascribing glory, strength, and holiness unto God, we also must learn to do if we are to be impacted by His glory and to worship Him properly. We must carry our impressions and our understandings of God's holiness back into every aspect of our lives, allowing His holy character to shape and mold us as pliable clay in His hands, knowing that if we truly do that, it will only conform us more and more into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, this... Psalm is not just a petition to the angelic choirs in heaven. It's a summons to every single creature on earth to give glory to God and to worship Him. And that includes you and me. It's a reminder that if kings deserve the best that their subjects have to offer, how much more is due to the King of kings, the King of all creation, because God and God alone is worthy of our worship, all of creation has a calling and obligation to glorify Him. And that same summons that has been extended to the angels also extends to us in the verses that follow. We continue in verses 3-9. to The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild young ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forests bare. And in His temple, everything says glory. So this second portion of the psalm contains some very illustrative, vivid imagery 
of the power of a storm. In, in this part of the psalm, there's so much imagery. I have to imagine that it's like we're supposed to just sit back and imagine the power that's being described to us through poetic prose. This is a, a description of this fierce storm. Now maybe you've been in a fierce storm before. And if so, maybe you can imagine what David is describing here. I'll never forget one storm that Christina and I experienced when we first moved as a married couple uh, to Las Vegas. The desert ground outside of Las Vegas. Vegas is in a valley. Las Vegas is in a valley, so everything flows to, to the middle when it rains. But the desert ground outside of Las Vegas gets very, very little annual precipitation. And so as a result of that, when rain does fall uh, up in the mountains, rivers of flooding water would come sweeping down those mountains, down into the valley, across the desert, uh, down into the streets of Las Vegas. And because I'm from Las Vegas, I had heard all these stories about uh, people being swept away by floodwaters when floodwaters would, uh, would rise up. I heard stories every year about this happening and how cars would get washed away uh, by trying to drive across uh, raging, raging floodwaters, in a particular wash of town especially. But knowing how many lives had been taken by floodwaters, I knew when we were stuck in, uh, in, in a flood, I knew that our only move was to find higher ground when Christina, Caleb, and I were uh, trying to drive home one night only to encounter these rising, quickly rising, flash floodwaters on the streets about a mile from where we were living. And thankfully, we did find higher ground in a parking lot for a convenience store. And we watched as the floodwaters continued to come up another few feet before they were completely done. All we could do was sit there in our car and wait. There was absolutely nowhere we could run. Uh, if those waters had overcome that parking lot, we really had nowhere to go. But an hour or so later, the waters did start to subside and we were eventually able to get home. And if you were to go onto YouTube, there are all kinds of videos online of this kind of stuff happening in deserts, of, of what happens when flash flood waters come washing away down a, down a, a mountainside uh, through the desert. They wash away roads, they wash away uh, sturdy bridges. Needless to say, one of the greatest dangers of storms, especially in desert regions, is the power of that water when it moves. There is nothing in nature that compares to the power and the ferocity of a storm that dumps millions upon millions of gallons of rainwater in a very, very short time. Uh, water does damage that nothing else that we know of can do. If you remember the, the tsunami in Indonesia uh, back in 2003, 2004, it literally changed what a map is supposed to look like. It changed their whole coastline. Water, instantly, washing away so much land. That's why David uses this type of imagery to describe the power of God. His voice is likened to thunder. How many of you have been in a place where thunder has struck less than 100 yards away? That is a crazy, crazy experience. It is so powerful. I don't think you can fully describe how powerful it is, but it is terrifying to be within 100 yards of a bolt of lightning hitting the ground. 
And so is the power of God's voice. It is terrifying. It is a power that we can't even begin to imagine. It is powerful enough that it brought everything in all of creation into existence. All He did was speak. And everything that exists was created. We read of what the people witnessed as Moses was up on Mount Sinai in Exodus, receiving the Ten Commandments from God. In, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, this is what we read. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain. He's talking with God. God's talking with him. We read this. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. They saw the power of God speaking in the thunder and in the lightning. Little did they know that dying to themselves, to the flesh, was actually exactly what they needed. It was exactly what God could accomplish with His voice. It's powerful enough that, as David tells us in verse 5, it breaks into pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Now, if you know about the cedars of Lebanon, in in ancient Israel, the the cedars of Lebanon were absolutely enormous trees. Uh, They were very tall. They were wide. They were sturdy. Nothing could uproot them. People certainly couldn't uproot them. And as such, these cedars of Lebanon were a symbol of incredible strength. And yet, what are they in comparison to the power of the voice of God, which breaks them like they were just little fragile toothpicks? The voice of God is so powerful, David says, that it makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The mountains of Lebanon rise up over 10,000 feet above sea level. These are enormous mountains. They're beautiful, majestic mountains that are being called into mind here. Mountains that are so great, so, so enormous, they would make Mount Rainier pale in comparison. And God's voice, David is telling us, can melt these mountains. He can absolutely shatter these mountains. He can flatten them just with the power of His voice. Sirion is the Sidonian name for Mount Hermon. Uh, And even these solid, fortified, seemingly immovable geographic locations are being brought into humble submission by the power of this storm. The idea of skipping like a calf or like a young wild ox is an image of the ground rumbling and trembling In our vernacular today, we'd say it's like the ground is shaking like a leaf and so is everything on it. And all this takes place by the sovereign, unthwartable, sovereign decree of God. In verse 7, David tells us that the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. That's a reference to lightning. Yes, even every lightning bolt is decreed by God. Every lightning bolt strikes the mark that God has decreed for it. Job chapter 36, verse 32 says, He covers His hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. There's no such thing as a stray lightning bolt in God's economy. He sovereignly directs all things to the end 
that He has sovereignly ordained. This is not some puny little God who sends His Word out, who speaks and just hopes for the best. No, this is a a mighty God. This is a sovereign God whose voice shakes even the firmest foundations. His voice shakes the wilderness. His Word never returns void to Him. It always hits the mark. It always accomplishes exactly what He desires for it to accomplish. Even in the vast plains of the wilderness, God's voice is felt. No one can escape the reach of God's voice. So powerful and so terrifying is the voice of the Lord that we see His voice makes animals give birth. And it strips forests bare. If you've seen those videos of atomic bombs wiping the branches of trees away and uprooting trees, that's, that's an image that we might liken to this as well. His voice is so powerful that it can move everything. His voice reaches and affects the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Neither height nor distance is an issue. The power of His voice is felt everywhere when He speaks. All of creation, all of creation hears His voice and trembles in response. And because all of creation hears His voice, all of creation has a calling and an obligation to glorify Him. Now when we're talking about the voice of God, we should remember that Jesus is God. And that He once taught that His sheep hear His voice. His voice is so powerful that it brings, valley to, or brings life to a valley of dry bones. His voice is so powerful that it gives life to sinners who are spiritually dead. We, we talk about the power of God in His Word. About how the work of God is done by the Word of God. And we talk about God's people hearing God's voice when His Word is preached. That's why... We preach nothing but the pure, unadulterated Word of God in our church. It's because preaching His Word is how His voice is heard. And His Word has a power to do what no human ideology or philosophy will ever, ever, ever be able to do. The power of His voice... The power of God's voice is seen in His sovereign, effectual calling of sinners to salvation in His Son. If the voice of God has this much power over the most powerful, sturdy, steadfast things on earth, how much more power is demonstrated in the transformation of hardened hearts through the preaching of the Gospel? Those cedars of Lebanon, is it possible for us to go and uproot them today? Sure. Mountains, can, can we move them? Like if we literally just wanted to take a scoop at a time, could, could we bring down mountains? Sure, a nuclear bomb could take down mountains. All these things are movable. But these things are nothing. These demonstrations of power that can move those things are nothing in comparison to God's power being demonstrated in breaking the heart of stone. 
God can use the forces of nature to, to break down the cedars of Lebanon and to, to flatten mountains. But there's no force in nature that can break or soften the human heart. But God's voice can. God's voice can. Charles Spurgeon noted that the gospel of Jesus has dominion over the most inaccessible of mortals. And when the Lord sends the word, it breaks hearts far stouter than the cedars. And Spurgeon goes on to say that, quote, the glorious gospel of the blessed God has more than equal power over the rocky obduracy and mountainous pride of man, end quote. And so, as we consider the storm that's been described for us, we should notice the repetition of the phrase, the voice of the Lord. Actually, in these verses, we see that phrase used a total of seven times. Seven times we read the voice of the Lord. Is that significant? Of course it is. There's nothing accidental in God's Word. But it reminds us that this is not a psalm about a storm. It's a psalm about the power of God's voice. It's a psalm about the worthiness of God and the call and obligation to worship Him. We've seen the power of God described by the most powerful forces in nature. And then we come to the end of verse 9, which says, And in His temple, everything says glory. These are things and people that have witnessed the power of God's voice. Now, some, some commentators believe that this is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. I don't think it is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem because who built the temple in Jerusalem? Solomon did. Solomon was David's son. So in David's time, there was no temple. So which temple does this refer to? I'd say that the most natural explanation seems to be all of creation. Both heaven and earth, everything declares the glory of God. As Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Because God and God alone is worthy of our worship, all of creation has a calling and obligation, a divine summons to glorify Him and to worship Him. Now this brings us to the final two verses of the psalm. The final two verses here describe the situation after the storm has passed. If you know what happens in the desert when a fierce storm like this comes through, the whole geography is changed. The landscape has changed. But here's what we have to understand. The landscape may have changed as a result of the power of this storm, but God is still sovereign and is still as worthy of our praise as ever. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. David writes, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. It is a wonderful, wonderful comfort to remember that even if the whole world shakes 
Even if everything is thrown out of order in the world, God is never moved. God is never shaken. He is still sovereign over all things. God is still completely in control of all things. He is still seated on His throne above all things. Nothing can shake Him. Nothing can move Him. Nothing can dethrone Him. There's only one other place in the entire Old Testament where you'll find this word that gets translated flood. And that's, of course, in Genesis, in the account of the the worldwide flood. And that seems to be the imagery that David is trying to remind us of here since it's written in the past tense. David says, the Lord sat, not sits, but He sat as king at the flood. The flood, if you remember the story from Genesis of the worldwide flood, it was a picture of God's holy and righteous wrath being poured out against the sin of man. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The flood was a picture, friends, of God's holy, perfect, just judgment against sin. But in the midst of that story, we're introduced to a man who found favor in God's eyes. And God gave this man instructions to construct an ark and sealed him. God sealed him inside of the ark with his family when the flood waters broke. That ark was a picture of God's saving, sovereign grace. It wasn't that Noah was smarter than everybody else and so he found favor with God. It wasn't that Noah wasn't as sinful as everybody else and so he found favor with God. No, the text goes on to make sure that we understand that Noah was a vile, vile sinner just like you and just like me. But God made a provision of grace for those who heard His voice. David reminds us of that story with the terminology that he uses here in verse 10. He's reminding us that even in the fiercest storms that you or I encounter in life, God is sovereign. God is in complete control. David is reminding us here also that a final storm of judgment looms on the horizon for every person on the face of the earth. And the only ones who will survive it, the only ones who will be prepared and braced for that judgment will be those who have believed in God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That ark was a picture of Christ. It was a foreshadowing, we would say, of Christ. Those are the only people who will escape the wrath. Those to whom not only gives strength to endure and persevere, but also blesses with peace. Is the world falling apart right now? Is the world shaking and shifting under our feet right now? It sure seems like it is. And so this is a good psalm for us to think about. This psalm encourages us to to lift our eyes from the mess of this world, from the turmoil that the world is in, to look away from the world and to look above the rubble, look above the destruction, and to turn our hearts, to turn our eyes to God who sovereignly rules over the storms and who strengthens and blesses His people with peace, even when the fiercest storms come, even when the world is being shaken 
down to its bare bones. The highest calling that you or I have, the chief purpose of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And all the things of this world offer us absolutely nothing in terms of comfort or assurance when the world feels like it's falling apart. There is nothing in the world that you can cling to that can give you lasting comfort. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? It better not be those cedars of Lebanon, because those are coming down. It better not be Mount Hermon, that can be flattened in a second. No, the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us is, what is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That is our comfort when the world around us is falling apart, when the ground beneath our feet is shaking and shifting. That's the peace that Paul would refer to as the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that makes no sense to the world because they don't have those same truths to cling to. Whatever they cling to, the best they can cling to is the cedars of Lebanon or Mount Hermon. Those things are gone in a second. Those things are temporary. But the peace that God offers His people is not temporary. And it cannot be stolen from us. Kings deserve the best that their subjects have to offer. Our God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How much more does He deserve than an earthly king from their subjects? He is worthy of our best. Because God and God alone is worthy of our worship, all of creation has a calling and an obligation to glorify Him. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. And so in light of these truths, friends, let us commit ourselves to giving glory and honor to God, walking in humble obedience to Him, worshiping Him the way He has instructed us to worship Him, ascribing to Him the glory that is due His holy, matchless name. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, it is truly humbling to be reminded of how great You are, of how worthy You are, of how holy You are. And to be reminded that the only way we could enter into Your presence is through a mediator, 
a mediator who can cleanse us. And so we thank you for Jesus, whose blood washes away our sin. We thank you, O Lord, for the reminder that you are sovereign over all things and that even the most powerful forces on earth can only give us the slightest glimpse of your power. And so we thank you, O Lord, that you have given us ears to hear your voice, that you have called us unto your service by the power of your Spirit dwelling within us. And so we pray, O Lord, that our lives would be a testimony to your grace and to your ability to transform even the vilest of sinners. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.